the breakout, gold's going to make a new all-time highs. Gold-backed ETFs in inflows of over $5 billion. $0.8 trillion gold market. Why are we the only guys to see on this <laughs> All right, welcome to this week's episode of Live from the Vault. My name is Shane Rand, and I will be your host for this exciting episode. Now, we've asked our community, our global community, uh, to go ahead and comment on who they would like to see interviewed regarding the physical gold and silver markets. And we're listening, and we've got a blockbuster interview for you today. You're absolutely going to love it. Now, just before we go to the interview, I want to go over to Talking Gold with Andy McGuire. And look, Andy, it seems like with regard to the gold and silver markets, these past two weeks can seem like a couple months uh, there's so much going on. Maybe we can start the episode off by picking up the thread of last episode uh, as we continue. So over to you, Andy. Absolutely, my friend. And let's start by talk, taking a look at the um, extremely aggressive end of quarter official action, um, which resulted in a major overshoot of really what can be only described as physical support levels. Now, obviously, that had a lot of people scratching their heads. And it was so counterintuitive in nature. And it was really, although we evidenced um, uh, the, the paper to physical dislocation in the wholesale market, we noticed that first. But really, and we're talking about this end of quarter um, session, which since the last two weeks that we've done our episode, of course. And what was really evident was the unprecedented deep backwardations as we entered and ended the quarter uh, and the April gold futures contract, if you remember, April gold, gold futures contract was expiring at the end of March. And then uh, we would then perhaps expect maybe a little backwardation at that point. But what we witnessed was the this enormous, unprecedented degree where we saw the new June contract roll onto the board. And guess what? there was a massive backwardation right away into the June contract. Now that should not be happening. And really what this is telegraphing, what it telegraphed to us was that the paper market selling was grossly overdone. And in fact, what an opportunity, in fact, it was telling us. Um, and, and obviously overdone versus the physical market. And it was no surprise, of course, to see the market maker, making insiders taking the long side of every tricked in sell order. And, you know, you get to see that in some small degree in the COT report. We discussed that before, how that delayed report reveals something, but, but not everything. Now, what we're really focused on now, and, and obviously this is the end of the quarter, but what we're really focusing on now is the 90-day Basel III window. And we're talking about 90 days till the June the 28th. And it would be the last date for banks to unwind very large unallocated gold positions before this 85% haircut makes it far too expensive for them to engage in gold lending or hypothecation. Now, in anticipation of this new regulation, banks do not want to be short gold. Of course they don't, especially as we're talking about the massive amount of, of unallocated short gold positions. Now, these are unbacked. Now, aside from what we're seeing in the wholesale markets, which gives us quite a degree of, of visibility, this is actually also partly evidenced in the futures structure. Now, since the 80,000 uh, contract peak in gold open interest, and that was in January 2020, and what we've done is we've witnessed these insiders exiting their short positions and positioning long into a reduction of 35,000 lots of open interest. And that obviously means a lot um, to, to traders when you see that amount of open interest reduce. Now, notably, really, this is, the key, this is very important. Open interest has now fallen to the lowest level since May 2019. And just to remember, gold was trading well over $400 lower at around the 1270s at that time. So we're back to that kind of level of open interest. So that's gotta be a red flag if you're a short, because 
you're now dealing with far less open interest that you can possibly play games with. Now, as we've recently warned, and we, we warned this in our last two episodes, the very short-term effect of the Bank of International Settlements and these related insiders, when they buy back unallocated gold positions to square up these least swapped gold positions, in other words, what we're saying is the unwinding of these massive unallocated gold positions, what it in, in initially involves, and we did warn about this, is that when you sell these long foreign exchange fractional gold positions to buy back and square up the dollar side of the foreign exchange currency cross, on the face of it, this action looks bearish. But it's more akin to pulling off a band-aid. It's better to do it fast. And this is exactly what we've been witnessing. And it's not a surprise. And this is the unallocated squaring. And this accelerated into the end of the first quarter March trading. But what we're saying, though, is although this effect has been readily exploited, obviously, by the market making insiders, because they have control of the market and they're doing their part, by pulling the bids and assisting officials in rinsing out margin longs at, at the very obvious moving averages. And we've talked about this multiple times, how, when, how, how you want to play. If, you're in, if you hold the position concentration and you reach a moving average, you pull some bids, you're a market maker, you can actually, move, you can actually without going short, you can actually create a dip. And this very large unwind of unallocated open interest is actually rapidly improving the paper to physical structure as the window to actually complete this is fast closing, as we say, in less than 90 days from now. So ultimately, there are trillions of dollars of over-the-counter market liquidity to tap into. But, but given the accepted well over 100 to 1 leverage duration and, uh, ratio, and remember, we, <laughs> this is not a number we've pulled out of the, out of, out of, out of the air. That is accepted by industry apologists, backed up by them, and it's also backed up in the 2010 Reserve Bank of India report that this selling, this is the 100%, 100 to 1 leverage ratio, which they said but somewhere between 92 and 100. This selling initially has a negative effect on price, but under the covers, what it's doing is removing the short fuel that really enables physical market hypothecations. And as we know, gold leasing is the principal tool employed to short gold. So reducing this activity makes it much more difficult to short gold and it's therefore bullish. Now, the BIS has swapped and leased hundreds of tons of physical gold, while in reality, not a single ounce, we talked about this multiple times, not a single physical ounce has left their site account for well over three years. In fact, longer than that, but at least three years. Now, I'm going to refer to Gatter, uh, Gatter's Robert Lamborn. He does an absolutely excellent job of assisting in demystifying this deliberately opaque smoke and mirrors world of the BIS swaps and leases. And as he points out, the February swaps are now estimated at, say, 552 tonnes. Uh, this estimation very much jives with what we would assess in the wholesale market, whereby when you net out legitimate physical flows around the major desks and trading hubs, we're quite certain that none of these hundreds of tonnes of lease swap bullion ever, ever hits the open market in physical form. So. Instead, these leased gold liabilities secretly sit on the books of the too big to fail bullion banks. And with these are the banks, if you remember, and we call them insiders because they know when the selling is going to come through. They, these guys are privileged to have gold accounts with the Bank of England. And as we've reported in previous episodes, it's unlikely the BIS would further leverage these swaps and almost certainly are almost certainly allocate what what they're doing really is uh, the, 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 the allocated to unallocated swaps are really just one to one. They're not leveraging it further than that. I think that would be extremely dangerous and very difficult for them to explain. But thereafter, when they lay this out to the uh, to the bullion banks, 
there's nothing to stop the bullion banks further leveraging these swaps on their own books. And they do that with impunity, well, because they know that they can be squared. And this simply means that the BIS is one-to-one -one short allocated gold and long unallocated gold. It's that simple. And look, this view is shared by every physical desk that I've spoken to and we deal with. Notably, as we, as we commenced March trading, these hypothecated positions had grown to historically high levels. And it's just no coincidence that COMEX open interest has grown by 226 tonnes since the March 2020 EFP blow up. So you can see what's happened in these leases have actually increased by 226 tonnes since the March blow up. Now, why? Now, if you recall, this unallocated gold expansion commenced into a period when there was, if you remember this, closed Swiss refineries, transportation airlines were frozen. Yet, if you remember, we supposedly evidenced hundreds of tonnes of COMEX, um, uh, G GLD ETF inflows, iShare inflows, hundreds of tons combined in this exact same period when there was no physical around. And it should not be forgotten that following this EFP blow up, absolutely no size was available in the wholesale market at any price. And, and no matter what the premium was that we would offer, there was nothing available. It was simply frozen. The refineries were shut. And in reality, so really what we're saying is these inflows were absolutely impossible to fulfill into a frozen wholesale bullion market, which basically clearly telegraphs these were official swaps. There is no one else that could have done this. And that's where this bullion, supposed bullion, unallocated bullion came from. And these resulting liabilities now sit on the books of the two big to fail bullion banks. They don't sit on the BIS's books. And as we've discussed in prior episodes, while it's possible for the BIS to keystroke square unallocated positions sitting on the books of these two big to fail banks, they cannot do so with the rehypothecated positions sitting in the ETFs like GLD, iShares. And we've started to see this unwind, accelerate, as the June uh, NSFR deadline approaches. Now, you know, obviously you can go back on episodes and we can we could drill into the detail, but obviously we just want to keep this, this moving along um, for, for, to keep the thread uh, consistent. Now, obviously selling unallocated gold positions to buy physical bullion, it initially has a lagging effect due to the fact that the sell side is leveraged and the buy side isn't. But with less than 90 days to go, the Basel III window is fast closing and the effect of selling unallocated gold, and you can include silver in that as well, will be offset by an increasingly influential physical market driven by a globally driven inside and central bank race to allocate. Now the March BIS sell-off has likely crossed these lines satisfactorily and we could, should start to evidence strong, physically driven bullish action commencing this second quarter into the end of the second quarter. Now, Andrew, I remember that uh, a couple weeks, actually for the past couple episodes, you've been reporting on the central bank buying activity. And uh, can you tell us if this is still going on now? Yes, Shane, it is. And it's stepping up now. Now, we reported this into the March sell-off. And it's no coincidence that we're evidencing central banks openly repatriating and upping physical gold purchases, as well as insiders exiting their net short positions as fast as possible. Now, we've also been reporting massive central bank and sovereign physical demand into last week's final BIS kick at the can. We think that is the final kick at the can, um, simply because, as we just described, the open interest has now reached levels where we're looking at hundreds of dollars higher and with very, very minimal ability to rinse anymore. Now into the counterintuitive, but I think explainable price action, every single global bullion hub from India, Turkey, Switzerland, Asia 
has reported very large gold premiums into this sell-off and extremely strong physical demand as central bank size of physical was sought. Now, it's going to be reported by the end of this month of April that actually, you wait for it, that the BIS and the related insiders and the global trading hubs like India and Turkey, which could often trade at a discount, but really evidence premiums last month, and every central bank has officially increased their physical reserves during the end of the quarter smackdown, including the BIS. And it must also be taken into account, though, that a lot of central bank buying is actually bilaterally settled and not reported. So when we look at the physical reports, physical stockpiles underpinning the paper scam are actually dwindling a hell of a lot faster than it might seem. So if we dig just a little deeper, structurally, there's really, there was little need for the BIS to close spot gold below 1700 to 1750. And I remember saying that. And it's clear that their agent insiders privileged to have these gold accounts at the Bank of England capitalized on a strong dollar, rising bond yields. Remember, we called it a toxic cocktail. Um, what they did was, again, poor bids, rig prices lower to buy back unallocated positions ahead of the second quarter, which has now commenced. Now, we'll see Basel III NSFR haircuts come into the crosshairs. And then, of course, unallocated gold positions uh, to be bought back or allocated. You watch this start to unfold. And the second, the second quarter into June 28th, really, bottom line, is expected to be increasingly very strong for gold and silver. And why should it not be? And in fact, if look, the COT report, this, this report that is deliberately delayed by three days in a picosecond world when the data is available, and, and in fact, if you remember, it was released this last time on, on, a, on Good Friday, which is a market holiday. Gold and silver were closed. The Globex was closed. The, the, markets were, the spot markets were closed. European spot markets were closed. No fixes. And yet they were able to turn up this COT report when clearly the data was available well before it was published on Friday. Of course, nobody was working on Friday. So no government worker was <laughs> working on Friday. So it's just as an illustration, of course, why do we have to wait till Friday when clearly they were able to do it on Thursday and we know that the data is available on a Tuesday night. So just to re 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 reaffirm how this report is so spurious in nature and, and not, it doesn't stop there. When, when assessing the COT report, it must be borne in mind that current gold open interest, actually these numbers include short hedges related to allocated bullion held legitimately by an increasing number of second-year banks seeking to comply with Basel III rules. And as we pointed out multiple times, these COT reports are near on useless without balancing it out with the 10 times larger over-the-counter market activity. And the open interest collapse it really just partly reflects the unwind of unallocated gold positions. And, and in silver, these reports do not reflect physical and over-the-counter positioning at all. So when reading them, be cautious. So really what we're saying is, look, short term, the open interest structure of both reports are currently extremely bullish. And that's kind of where I wanted to leave it uh, because We've got some really exciting, uh, exciting guests to introduce in a minute. And uh, I think this is going to be a real blast for everyone. A really good friend of mine, Alistair McLeod. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me on. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think sometimes we, we, I live and breathe gold, silver, and, and sometimes we, we, we have to be aware of the crosses and all these other factors. And, and I think that's why it's so helpful to have um, you know, your, your view on the wider economy and, and how things interact. And, and I think um, you have such a wide spectrum of financial knowledge and we would undoubtedly, we will try and cover a wealth of subjects, but, but you know, with time limited, I'm going to try and look at the crosses that impact the gold and silver markets. And uh, Alistair, I just provided a bi-weekly gold and silver market update just ahead of this, but 
it would be very helpful to get your view on on the economic drivers really really relating to gold and and i guess my first question is relating to debt debt to gdp running north i think 130 percent and it's likely the fed does not want a stronger dollar and we've had a lot of questions around the underperformance of gold and silver over the last few weeks and and i did have a brief discussion on this with my power craig ferguson recently and and it was all about the persistent dollar strength, rising bond yields, acting as the really primary sell drivers in both gold and silver. And historically, there's been a kind of inverse correlation between bond yields and gold. While, but on, while history really has proven that a rising dollar is not necessarily bearish for gold. And in, certainly in times of uncertainty, we can see both the dollar and gold be sought as safe havens. And I, I sometimes put safe haven with a dollar with an inverted bracket. But um, obviously, gold's a proven risk mit mitigator. So, Alice, I'd love your thoughts on, on that. Well, I mean, starting starting with this question of, um, you know, the dollar and, and strength in the dollar and all the rest of it. Um, not many people are around now who have experienced uh, what happened in the 1970s. I mean, we entered that decade, I think, with and, and please don't, um, you know, tell me if I get this really wrong. But I mean, this is sort of it's approximate. We entered that decade, I think, with U.S. Treasuries yielding around about six or seven percent and gold at thirty five dollars. And we finished it with gold having hit eight hundred and fifty and interest rates, US dollar um, uh, prime rates uh, at that time went up to over 20%. So this sort of myth that uh, rising interest rates is bad for gold uh, is actually not true. And I think a lot of the mistake is people don't understand that gold actually does have an interest rate. It is completely different from the interest rate on a fiat currency. I mean, if you want to borrow gold out, say, a year or something, I mean, you could probably quote me the rates, but I think you're probably looking at a rate of a couple of percent or something like that. Whereas in more normal times, rather than these suppressed interest rate times, at the same time, you would probably see dollar rates for two years going out to, say, five to seven percent, something like that, in more normal times. Um, so I think we can dismiss that concern right from the off. Um, but overall, I think the problem that you and I face is we see markets are totally broken. So there's no logic uh, between what's going on in one side of the market and what's going on in another. And the reason they're totally broken is because the Fed is suppressing interest rates. And it's doing that for two fundamental reasons. Um, the first and more obvious is it has got um, uh, budget deficits, government budget deficits to finance. And uh, that is a serious task, particularly given this COVID, COVID crisis. And uh, the second thing is that the Fed is intent on creating a wealth effect by pushing up financial asset prices. And this is the whole purpose of QE. And now we've got 120 billion a month going into insurance companies and pension funds and similar establishment investment management uh, vehicles um, uh, where there's, they're, they're taking out low yielding uh, US treasuries and encouraging pension funds, insurance companies and the rest to go and buy more risky um, uh, financial assets. And so it's hardly surprising that the equity market has become completely divorced from any fundamental reality. And it's hardly surprising that um, uh, the uh, yields, if you like, in the corporate bond market have become suppressed by the weight of money coming out of uh, lower yielding US treasuries. So we've got these massive distortions. And um, it's interesting because you know, the sort of conventional macroeconomic approach is to, you know, to look at uh, correlations between this, that and the other thing. But forget it. It's a complete waste of time in these conditions. The only thing you can do is actually stand back and analyse the situation properly. And uh, interestingly, you mentioned debt. I've just released an article looking at debt and uh, the figures, so far as I can establish them, are that globally debt is 284 trillion dollars equivalent 
and that works out at 335% of global GDP. Now, this is obviously a moving target and, you know, you've got all sorts of things that change the numbers, but that's the sort of scale of numbers that we're looking at. And um, the debt is really um, in a number of, 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 of different categories. You've got government debt, obviously, and that's running at about 103% of GDP around the world. Um, and let me just say about government debt, the wrong comparison is actually to think in terms of government debt to GDP. What is far more relevant is government debt to its tax base. And the tax base, of course, is the private sector. And if you go around the world, approximately 40% of, um, uh, of GDP is government. Take that out. You've got 60%. So instead of the thing being um, in a sort of around about 100, 100 and something percent, I mean, you can almost double it to get a, a true figure. That is really what matters. Anyway, that was one section, government. Another is obviously finance, the financial sector. And um, the thing that's interesting there is that uh, the estimate in that um, uh, $284 uh, trillion dollars, uh, is, uh, includes around about, I think from memory, it's something like $64 trillion of finance sector debt. Now, I can account even just in the GSIB banks, the liability side of their balance sheets amounts to 58 trillion. So they're wildly underestimating the amount of debt within the finance sector. So that's that's a point worth bearing in mind. And then you look at the corporate um, sector and that is very concerning. And interestingly, it's the sector which nobody really pays very much attention to. But when you bear in mind that private equity has uh, gone in and bought you know, good companies and turn them round from being um, companies which repay their debts into leveraged bets so that the, um, the, the private equity firm can strip out high dividends. I mean, basically, they just, you know, they just end up leaving a zombie shell and they walk on and then do the next one. As well as that, of course, we know about all the lobbying efforts that go on in places like Brussels and Washington and to a lesser extent, London. Um, and these are large corporations who no longer serve customers. What they do is they try and get advantage, preferential government advantage, and, and also a monopoly out of government. So uh, they also are zombies. And the debt in this corporate sector is absolutely enormous. And the problem for the banks is they're no longer very keen to push um, working capital into the corporate sector, the non-financial corporate sector, because of all the risks. So this is looking like falling over. And if you look also, as far as the corporate sector is concerned, just have a look at the supply chains. I, they are in a mess and they've been in a mess for over a year now. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to have an expensive apartment in Los Angeles, you get the binocs out and have a look and you see all the ships sitting there at anchor. They're going nowhere. And uh, the containers are stuck in completely the wrong place. I mean, people in the industry reckon that it'll probably take uh, towards the end of this year, all being good, that the logistics foul up will be sorted out. And that's a problem because um, in America, gross output, which equates to the payments in the supply chain, we're looking at $38 trillion. This is on a GDP of around about 20 trillion, by the way. So you can see it's almost double um, uh, the final, if you like, the final product, uh, uh, which is really what GDP is. Now, is the Fed going to rescue all this? I mean, you know, the, the Fed basically has three tasks. And, you know, one of them is to finance the government, which I've already mentioned. The other is to keep the economy going, which is getting impossible. And of course, the third is to keep the bubble going. Um, and uh, the problem with the bubble is that now we've got rising interest rates and rising interest rates are occurring. Why? Because people are making a reassessment of the likely rate of inflation following lockdowns over the rest of this year and into uh, 2022. And quite clearly, um, there is a supply issue. And this is apart from the um, uh, the supply chains all sort of falling apart. I mean, the fact is that we don't have the industrial capacity anymore to absorb the spending that is likely to be unlocked 
as a result of the end of COVID. So prices are going to rise at a considerably more rapid rate than that 2% ceiling, which all the central banks work to. And that 2% ceiling, incidentally, is a complete myth. I mean, we know this from other statistics. I mean, particularly in America, you had uh, John Williams at Shadow Stats, and he's been um, calculating on an unadjusted basis from the way in which it was all done in, back in 1980. And he's seen um, price inflation running at anything between 7 and 10% for the majority of the time since the great financial crisis. And the Chapwood Index is another one, which, um, and you, you, you look at their most recent statistics, which unfortunately are out of date because they've stopped collecting them because of COVID. But there you're looking at um, a similar rate of inflation. In fact, uh, um, just the uh, wrong side of 10% on average rather than the right side of 10%. So this is actually what's happening to money. So it's only a question of time before people begin to wake up to the fact that this is happening to money, his purchasing power is going down, and at the same time, debt is exploding. So, you know, putting all this together, the, the burden on the government and government agencies um, is far too great for any uh, desire, any um, possibility of reducing uh, the growth of the rate of debt. I mean, we've seen how money supply has taken off. And we've also seen the argument, and this is the fascinating thing, for the first time, even die-hard socialists are turning around saying, you can't raise taxes because you'll screw the economy. Well, what does that do to government spend, to the government deficit? I mean, you know, they're embedded in the whole system now, which basically means that ultimately the currencies will collapse. And in the middle of this, you've got the banking system. I mean, I just look at um, what's going on in the Eurozone. The major GSIBs there are in a horrendous position. The whole economy is in a horrendous position. If you look at the uh, debt to private sector um, in Italy, we're looking at 340%. Look at Greece, we're close to 400%. No, it's actually it's a bit less than that, probably about 370%. I mean, you're going to find that the pigs and France, because France's debt situation is pretty bad. Um, I mean, France also uh, roughly, I think, just, just under 40 percent of um, uh, France's economy is private sector. In other words, it's dominated by government. So just imagine that tax base with, you know, with that huge, great government on top of it. Yeah, I mean, the situation there is that those countries are in dire trouble. And who's bearing the cross of all this? The ECB. The ECB has to finance these governments. The ECB is seeing a situation where um, if they fail, then it's the end of Brussels, it's the end of the euro, the end of the ECB. And you only need to think about this situation just a little bit to see that that is not beyond imagining. So that's a sort of quick overview, if, <laughs> if that hasn't well, scared, scared people. I know that answers, that answers. And in fact, what that sort of suddenly brings to mind in, in my mind, it was something I was going to actually ask you about this. You know, we've suddenly seen, you talked about Europe just now, and, and, and it's something that you'd written a long time ago that, that caught my, I remembered it. I remembered it because of the history of it. But the, the exit of the UK from Europe, it, it's, it's really only just started to play out. And, and you'd once suggested that un, unless a 20th, 21st cent, uh, version of the Hanseatic League type trade alliance could be agreed based on commerce rather than politics, which seems to be not the case, this could perhaps be the slippery slope that would end the euro as a viable currency. And you just, you just, yeah. you just literally nailed that as 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 part yeah. of that. that. That was a very interesting article, by the way. Um, well, I, I think I think the order of events is we're going to have a crisis in the euro first before Germany will feel freed, if you like, to uh, do the deals um, that will make it central to uh, the new Hanseatic League. We've also got a problem in this. This is the geopolitical problem, and that is that America would be dead keen to stop it. I mean, we've already got the problem with the Ukraine, um, where with, with Nord Stream 2 lines, uh, Russia and Germany are bypassing the Ukraine, which basically means that the, the, uh, the prices that the Ukrainians load onto oil and gas in transit, uh, that's what they want to get out of. 
they want to get away from that, particularly from Russia's point of view. I mean, from multiple point of, points of view, and also because Ukrainian the Ukrainians are bad payers. So, yeah, so um, you know, this sort of thing is already planned. But we're going to see, I think, in the coming months, um, uh, quite a bit of activity on the Ukrainian front and a lot of uh, pressure applied to Germany, uh, the EU as a whole as well, to cancel that Nord Stream contract. But I think it's gone too far. And furthermore, the, the long term interests of Europe are a lot more bound up with Asia. I mean, this goes back to uh, Halford Mackinder, you know, the world island concept. The world will be ruled effectively between uh, the Volga and the Yangtze. That was what he wrote back in 1904. Um, it's a situation which China and Russia between them are exploiting. I mean, the amount of development that they've been putting in with the Silk Roads and all the rest of it is massive. And even now, um, Zanussi in, in, in Italy, it doesn't make its, um, you know, its white goods in Italy. No, they're made in China and they're then transshipped um, and it takes less than a fortnight for those goods to arrive in the showrooms in Italy. Mercedes are doing it the other way. You know, they manufacture <laughs> in Stuttgart. They just put the cars on the train at the Stuttgart terminal and um, 10 days later it's in the showroom in, in Beijing. You know, this is massive. And um, the idea that uh, America can persuade Europe to cut off its trading links with the rest of Asia, I'm afraid is completely wrong. And they're not going to allow it. So I think I can see a schism there. Uh, I mean, th these are very important times because uh, America has dominated the world, as we all know. But if you look at America now, I mean, the, the um, GDP of uh, uh, Europe, um, the EU, is now greater than America. The GDP of China on a purchasing power basis is greater than that of America. America's no longer top dog. Now, OK, she may be top dog militarily, but actually what matters at the end of the day is what sort of economy do you have to support all the costs of your defence and everything else that's required and to give you power around the world? I mean, we look at Germany. I mean, that's a very good example. But both Germany and Japan, who lost the Second World War and were completely destroyed by um, having a savings driven economy, not only have they recovered, but they have become the strongest two economies on Earth before China got the message. And this is very, very important to understand. America hasn't got that message. We in Britain didn't get that message. You know, we've been basically spend, 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 not save. And that is the principal weakness. And that is why Mackinder was right. Uh, you'll find that the world island, which also includes the whole of Africa, incidentally, on his analysis, um, is where the power really is going to lie in the future. It's so interesting. I, I mean, this is, you know, we don't, this is the thing, this is why it's so interesting to talk about these things, because these, these have massive implications for gold as well. And um, I mean, you just mentioned the Russian and Chinese uh, really geopolitical partnership. And I mean, look, these these are the two leading nations, of course, that behind the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And although the SCO now it, it, that actually includes India, Pakistan and, and a whole bunch of other members. So now considering <laughs> this is often forgotten, the SCO complies, uh, comprises of probably three billion Euro Asians. Uh, and that's about half the the global world's population. And I mean, so you just mentioned, you know, I think you just really alluded to this, that the greatest challenge uh, for the SEO um, is, is, is going to be this American economic power and technological supremacy being challenged. Uh, and especially as we've got Russia and China clearly determined to ditch the dollar and increase gold reserves. We've got, I mean, what, what are you what are you seeing in, in as far as that's concerned? Well, um, I, it, it's that is actually probably one of the most important points um, uh, in the whole world, uh, because America has um, promoted her dollar basically by demoting gold. And um, yet we have the Chinese and Russians who uh, have taken control of physical markets, I mean, particularly China. 
if you want any physical gold, I mean, it's, it's all locked up in China. Whether you can get an export license, of course, is another thing. But what it means, and they've also got a lot of hidden reserves. I mean, not only has China become the largest miner, not only has she become the largest refiner of her own gold, etc. But um, uh, I reckon, and I had some confirmation on this from sort of quasi-intelligence sources, that China has stored something like 20,000 tonnes of gold, physical gold, <clears throat> in various accounts. They don't appear in the central bank's account, but, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, the, 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 the Communist Party accounts, the uh, uh, army accounts, um, you know, the young Communist Party's accounts and so on. It's, it's sort of spread around. Uh, I, th I suspect that Russia is a similar situation. I, my guess is that uh, apart from her uh, um, monetary gold uh, on the on the central bank's balance sheet, there's probably a further eight to ten thousand tons there, um, not made visible. But there is a problem with this because if if uh, China and Russia decide as partners, we're going to come out and we're going to say exactly how much gold we've got, or we're going to load up our monetary gold uh, so that, let's say, the Bank of China, you know, has 10,000 tons and um, the, the Russian Central Bank has, you know, sort of 4,000 tons or something like that. Um, the risk is that it starts to destabilize the dollar. And the one thing that has been consistent in the actions of the Chinese, less so the Russians, but the Chinese, is they do not want to be associated with destabilizing uh, monetary conditions in the West. They would rather have an evolutionary approach where um, their currency begins to be adopted more and more for trade rather than destroy the dollar. In a sense, it's against her interest to destroy the dollar because she's got a hell of a lot of them. But, um, you know, I think... One thing that was very interesting was um, if we go back to last March, March um, uh, 2020, um, on the 20th of March, which was a Friday, the Fed cut its funds rate down from one and a half percent to zero. On the Monday, it then announced 120 billion a month QE and various other measures to suppress the yields of corporate bonds. Now, more or less from that moment, China, had, China changed her attitude towards dollars and commodities. She started stockpiling commodities, which put another way is dumping dollars. So, um, and that has continued. And if you look literally from that time, commodity prices just literally turned higher. The laggard in all this is gold. Guess why? Why? Because the, and you'll know a lot more about this than me, so it's not me who should be talking about this, but it's uh, uh, bullion banks got themselves horribly short and have been trying ever since to get themselves um, onto some sort of square position uh, at a time of accelerating monetary inflation. I mean, it's patently silly to be short of gold in these current times. But I have to say they have done an incredibly good job of managing expectations. It's very hard to find anyone who bought gold, let us say, in the last couple of years, um, who sort of sees the performance, compares it with Bitcoin and thinks, I'm in the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of managing expectations, I must say the uh, bullion banks have been very, very clever. But I think they have probably gone as far as they can go. Um, and that was up to the expiry of the uh, trading, if you like, of the April contract. The only thing which um, I don't know for certain is the liquidity in London. The last time I analysed it, I came to the conclusion that there was very little liquidity in London. I mean, you know, the vaults have got, what, 9,000 tonnes, but that's all spoken for by um, ETFs, uh, private ownership um, and, uh, you know, possibly central banks. So the idea that there is a float there, a decent float which could be traded, um, I don't think it's true. I, what do you think about that? I mean, you can probably fill me in on that one, Andrew. Well, I know I think that that was actually this is perfect segue because I was going to talk about, um, I think, one of the indicators of the backwardations. But also that's something that I think that that would come right into your bellywick. And so but, but starting with that now, look, we often look 
for at backwardations as they relate to gold and silver in the futures market versus what we see, of course, in the much larger physical or spot markets, as this kind of gives us at least some transparency into this smoke and mirrors world of the paper to physical imbalances that we just uh, talked about. And it also gives us an idea of how to kind of trade it. But we're also witnessing backwardations that reflect exactly what you just said, a similar stress to March 2020 conditions where we we saw a 600 buck rally in gold and an $18 rally in silver. So, but backwardations also relate to interest rates and all the crosses, related crosses, and especially as the BIS appears to be telegraphing that negative interest rates will be the norm, what would be great if you could give everyone a larger view of what you see, especially as these relate to the pricing of all commodities. I think, I think to, to, to understand interest rates, um, you have to understand that there is um, a premium for actually possessing something. So if I actually have cash dollars in my hand, that is a premium to someone promising to give me cash dollars at some stage in the future. It's um, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush sort of argument, but that's, that's basically it. Um, and then on top of that, there are other factors, obviously. Um, you have got um, the uh, rate of interest that uh, the system offers, if you like. And on top of that, you've also got um, uh, the um, uh, counterparty risks and all these factors. And you end up with a sort of an omnibus figure in terms of if I'm not prepared, if, if I'm prepared to lend you some money, um, for let us say a year, what is the interest rate? Now, some of that is this time preference thing, the very fact that I don't possess it until a year's time. Now, this is important because what feeds into time preference is uh, your and my view of um, what the currency that we're exchanging is likely to purchase in a year's time. Now, we have massive monetary inflation. We have a situation where the hedge funds in particular have begun to understand that uh, not only are prices going to be higher next year and a lot more than 2%, but interest rates should also be higher to reflect the loss of purchasing power. You know, we're coming back to our calculation, if you like, which every, every um, borrower and lender has to make. Now, the fact that the central banks have been doing that calculation for us is immaterial. There comes a point where we think this is not a good deal. The idea that um, I get zero percent on my interest rates or I have to pay quarter of a percent or half percent, whatever it is, on my euros and Japanese yen and Swissies and Danish krona. I mean, forget that. This is no longer the situation because uh, the purchasing power of these currencies is going down. Now, that's the importance of the signal going back to 20th of March last year when all commodities suddenly took off and even something like Bitcoin. I mean, uh, you know, up 700 percent or something or 800 percent. I mean, it's just just enormous. Um, and the, the, the situation now is that that is being reflected in bond yields out along the yield curve, because not only are we interested in, let us say, what we should be uh, compensated for in terms of uh, lending money, but also uh, if we are lending money and we're taking a, a, a relatively risk free attitude on this, it is because we have US treasuries. So when we see the 10 year US Treasury rise, um, there can only be two things. The first explanation is that the economy is going to recover. Hey, isn't this wonderful? The second is that the dollar is going to lose purchasing power and people in the dollar are already demanding a higher return to hold those dollars. Yeah. So what we're going to see is um, not just 1.6, 1.7% yield on uh, a synthetic 10-year treasury, that's going to go way over 2%, 3%. And normally under these very, very uh, inflationary circumstances, all fueled by monetary inflation, I mean, you know, where does it stop? It's going to be a lot, lot higher. Now, 
the problem is that you've got on one hand the story that, well, rising interest rates is bad for gold. But, and we, we've just demolished that story, um, but people believe it because they're fiat, they're fiat driven. Okay, so that's, let's accept that. But the other story is uh, that uh, actually what we're going to see is an economy that's not going to perform. We're going to see massive inflation. We're going to see uh, restricted production because the capacity isn't there. The purchasing power of the dollar is going to fall and fall and fall. Now, if the Fed decides to try and suppress interest rates, the speed at which the dollar falls will just speed up. Now, here's another thing. If you look at the total foreign ownership of dollars, uh, financial assets in dollars, putting aside uh, physical assets completely, plus bank deposits, it is in the order of $27 trillion. This is the foreign ownership of dollars and financial assets. So now we have a situation where quite obviously uh, the Fed is not going to want to see interest rates rise, certainly not enough to compensate foreigners for their ownership of dollars. So what's going to happen to the dollar? It's going to go down th through the floor. What does that mean for gold? Gold priced in dollars, even if gold stays steady, gold priced in dollars is going to rocket. I mean, it's the only thing that can happen. And interestingly, and this is something I'd be very interested in your views, um, Andrew, um, the canary in this sort of, if you like, monetary mine, I think is, it looks like being silver. Um, we have had so much uh, uh, in recent days from, you know, the sort of the Robin Hood guys suddenly latching onto SLV. Um, and then we've had uh, stories from Australia about how the Perth Mint, um, you know, is sort of being telling porky pies about what it actually has out there. Um, and I think there's an outfit called ABC Bullion that seems to be running a fractional reserve system. I thought you needed a banking license to do that, for goodness sake. But, you know, maybe not. So, and uh, then I hear that there's similar problems in, in Canada with Kitco and everybody in the silver business that um, I've spoken to or had emails from, it all indicates the same thing. There's no silver out there. None at all. I mean, virtually none at all, except perhaps if you were a really big boy and um, you can sort of shuffle the stuff around with one of the other really big boys. But that's about it. Anyway, I'd be very interested in your view on silver. Yeah, and I think you're, you're, the silver is definitely the Achilles heel of this paper scam. Um, and, and I think um, this, this is why it is so interesting to see. Um, and obviously, we, we went through the Hunt Brothers process. The mis big mistake the Hunt Brothers made was borrowing their um, borrowing money uh, margin from the, uh, from the casino and then expecting them not to react when they started to accumulate all the chips. Well, obviously, that is not the situation. I think right now we're seeing, um, and this, let's just face it, I mean, okay, um, it's, it's in its infancy, but it's become a movement. And I think um, more and more people are catching on to this movement. And I think it's so interesting because silver is, is the small, a very small market as we know. Um, and I think that if we get, um, there's nine and a half, and I think nearly 10 million of these um, Reddit Raptors as we call them, I mean, it doesn't take much for these guys, and they're all talking about physical, physical, physical all the time. It doesn't take much for these raptors to suddenly latch on uh, and, and, and to start to continue to buy. And I think the thing is, we look at the wholesale market. We look at it and we go, yeah, we're involved in the wholesale market. We look at wholesale, we look, hey, we're going to buy a thousand ounce bar. We only want to pay a few cents over. And, you know, that's what we're negotiating here. And we get involved in that whole discussion. Suddenly you've got millions of potential people saying, well, hold on a minute. If I buy silver, if I buy a kilo bar, if I buy a coin, it's costing me 35, 40 bucks. I mean, they don't look at the wholesale price anymore. That is the price. That is the price. And I think ultimately what you're seeing is this underground movement completely removing this, this sort of uh, dislocating this paper game. And I think if it was going to start anywhere, it would start with the silver market. And in fact, that was, that was really, I think that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. And in fact, I asked every single person I've spoken to, uh, I say, I asked them, um, 
Well, what, what, where, where would you position yourself right now? Um, would you position yourself personally? And I'm just talking personally here. I'm not saying we're giving trading advice. Um, would you position yourself personally overweighted in silver or gold at this time? I would be overweighted in silver with a view to going back into gold, possibly at a late stage, because what we're looking at is the gold-silver ratio in effect. Um, now, on a rising gold price, I would expect the gold-silver ratio to fall towards 40, maybe 30, depending you know, how far we're, we're talking. So on that basis, you get more bang for your buck in silver than you do in gold. So um, I think, and again, I would emphasize I don't give investment advice, just as you have. Um, I would have thought that something like two thirds silver, one third gold is a reasonable mix. But what I do, I mean, I think also it's worth making a distinction because, um, you know, while we look at the prices day to day and we get tied up maybe with, you know, this move, that move and all the rest of it. Um, the vast majority of people who are following gold and silver are um, investors or traders. They are looking at it as um, something that they will take profits in eventually back into their, uh, their accounting currency dollars, sterling, euros, whatever it might be. Um, <clears throat> that is classic investment behavior. And that is what you're meant to do as an investor because you measure it against your base currency. But when we're talking about physical gold and silver, what we are, um, if you like, betting on is the possibility that the fiat money system will collapse. Now, this, does, this means that you do not take your profits in fiat currency you will end up spending gold or silver. So with that in mind, I think that what you should look at as well is what are going to be the roles of gold and silver um, when the whole thing goes bang. Now, um, the central banks only own one non-fiat asset, and that is gold. And I have this argument with people about Bitcoin who think that Bitcoin is going to be the future. Central banks are not going to disappear the moment the currencies start going to the wall. What they will do is they will adapt their position so that uh, they turn their currencies into gold substitutes. In other words, um, any central bank that wants to continue in existence will be forced to offer um, its citizens um, the option of converting paper currency into physical gold at the struck rate. Now, it's actually as simple as that. Now, when it comes to silver, you're not going to get quite that relationship because central banks don't have silver. Uh, they will concentrate on gold. They won't make the mistake, I think, of going back onto a silver standard because they lack it anyway. And nor will they make the mistake of trying to do too fixed um, a conversion rate between gold and silver. I mean, you know, Isaac Newton set it at 15 and a half times. And when I looked into it, I found it wasn't because he was a brilliant fellow, which he is or was. Um, it was because that was sort of the prevailing rate at the time. So he said, OK, we'll strike it at that. And of course, you know, the times when um, demand for gold is greater than silver. And so they couldn't actually keep the peg running that way. And then it would go the other way and they couldn't keep the peg running the other way. So you don't have a fixed peg. But undoubtedly, there is a working monetary relationship between gold and silver, which will be set by the market. Now, that rate, I think, would probably, and I'm going to just assume this, probably be slightly more than 20 times. Um, that being the case, then um, there is a hell of a lot of upside in silver because we're currently, what, 67 times? A figure like that. A lot of upside relative to gold. But I want, I've been trying to get people to think in terms of you accumulate some gold now, hoard it. Let's use the, use the basic language, hoard gold and silver, which you will spend when the currencies actually fall apart. And depending how much you believe whether someone like me is actually talking sense or talking complete rubbish, that should adjust the amount of gold and silver that you hold relative to your assets against that time. Sage advice, that is. I mean, absolutely. No, that, that, is, that is really, really pragmatic view. And I think, 
you know, ultimately that, you know, obviously we always come at, at some point, well, what is the price of gold? Well, of course, the price of gold and silver. I mean, you know, we could speculate all day long, but I think I just your thoughts on, on the way that I'm looking at this now. Obviously, we've got, and, and I've just, earlier in the interview, I talked about Basel III and 90-day window. I mean, really, this is a chance for the banks to unwind very large unallocated gold positions before an 85% haircut makes it way too expensive to engage in gold lending or rehype or, or hypothecation and and obviously in, in anticipation of this new regulation look banks do not want to be short gold we're quite sure of that but when, when we value how, how the way we look at it the way uh, when i speak to 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 uh, our sovereign contacts and these central banks value gold <clears throat> into this upcoming basel three and then of course basel four deadlines um they want to address, I think it, it addresses a major imbalance, and that is gold's collateralization of US foreign obligations has reached historic lows. And under the covers, I actually think this is one of the objectives of Basel 3 and 4, and we're talking about protecting dollar hegemony or an attempt to. And we see this, I think this is personally why I see this as the primary reason gold must be revalued when people say, yes, but they're the enemy of gold. But hang on, you have to start thinking differently here. Um, the current ratio of gold to foreign debt outstanding is between five and 6%. Now look, historically, and you, you would know this, it's been 20 to 40%. That's the historical average. So really, I think that is where it has to be. Otherwise the dollar is just gonna be trashed. And so if you restore, if you just happen to restore the age old 20 to 40 percent ratio of gold to foreign debts outstanding, that puts gold at six to twelve thousand bucks. And, and this is not these are not pie in the sky numbers. Um, and really, and we also think when in, you talked about 1980s a little while ago, that was the last time the dollar was questioned. And actually, when we look at the numbers, then the 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 actual collateralization was at 140%, which by 1980 levels, that would put gold at 43,000 bucks right now. So I don't know, these, these are my thoughts, but these seem, people say, well, how can you be, are you crazy, 612 grand? Well, why would it not be? Yeah, I think um, the two comments really. Uh, the first is, I think, a fairly obvious one. And that is the change in the relationships between uh, um, uh, gold, unallocated and allocated gold set out in Basel III, which I think I'm right in saying comes in at the end of June. Um, I mean, that, what that's going to do is that's going to reduce the amount of synthetic gold. Um, and I think this was confirmed by um, a, a letter or an analysis that the LBMA did basically try to persuade uh, the powers that be in, in um, Basel that you know, this was not a good idea. So um, that I think is, is quite clear. Now, if you, if you take away a lot of the paper out there, then obviously you're going to increase demand for the physical. It's as simple as that. And where's the supply coming from? Well, it's pretty fixed. I mean, I can't see that, um, you know, you're going to, I mean, you'll get a pick up in scrap on, you know, five, ten thousand dollars But, you know, there comes a point where uh, that scrap starts dying out. And um, I think that um, that is a situation we're likely to see. The second point I would make is that um, a lot of the plans that um, are currently being knocked around, like, you know, a new reset and all this sort of stuff, and new digital currencies, all depends on the central banks having time to introduce these new plans. Now, um, if you look at the overriding debt situation, um, which I very carefully analysed, the idea that um, the Eurozone banks, um, the corporate zombies, um, that uh, um, uh, you know the inflation problem with with um, uh, stock markets being crashed by rising uh, uh, U.S. Treasury yields, all these factors are not going to happen in three years' time. They're going to happen in the coming months. So there isn't time for all these wonderful plans that people have to come about. Now, consequently, I think there's a very strong chance that we will wake up one morning 
and suddenly realise that the world has changed. Now, at that stage, you've either got gold and silver or you haven't. You know, it's, it's simple. It's going to be bid only <laughs> in, our, in our traders language. So, um, you know, those, those are the two things I would say. I think, I think um, you know, first of all, the contraction of paper markets, I think, is an important point, And that is the point behind this Basel change. And the second point is that things are so fragile. Do not sit there idly expecting you've got loads of time to do this and that. And anyway, when something happens, it will give me the signal that this is what I should do. Forget it. We're going to wake up one morning and we're going to say, oh, and we've either got it or we haven't. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Alistair, that is a wonderful place to end this, this wonderful our conversation and what I would ask is that please come back because you know what I mean we've scratched the surface here and it is and obviously we, we relate um, a lot of this to gold and and, and the, the, the exit of perhaps dollar hegemony and all these other wonderful subjects um, but you're right and, and I really that is sage advice again don't don't delay you have to don't wait for, 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 for the accident to happen. It's already in motion, as you say, and yep. it's inevitable. And if you, I really would suggest that people even listen a couple of times to what you're talking about, because it actually makes a great deal of sense. You're attacking areas that people don't talk about. Yep. And actually, you know, you get on Bloomberg, none of the guys, none of the guests there talk about this kind of stuff. In fact, they'd probably mute it very quickly if, if, if they did. Uh, so we wouldn't get it's, it's back. Wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, and, um, and, and perhaps if you would be so kind as a, another time to come back and, and we can continue this conversation. Well, Andrew, I always enjoy talking to you, talking with you, talk, you know, knocking things about. So, um, it would be very much my pleasure to to do this again and if we can educate people at the same time i mean what a bonus that's really what we're here to try and do in in my view absolutely well thank you so much and uh, and and uh, again we'll uh, we'll look forward to you coming back to see us again i look forward to it too well there you have it another fascinating episode of life from the vault and i don't know about you but if that doesn't make you feel like you need to accumulate just a little more gold and silver. I don't know what will. Again, I'm no financial advisor, no financial expert, but what a great call. Thank you so much to Andrew McGuire and our special guest. By community demand, Mr. Alistair McLeod, we thank you. Uh, now, be sure to help us spread the word about this channel by liking and sharing and subscribing. And if you click on that bell right there, you'll be notified as these episodes go live. Now, one more thing in the comments below, make sure you tell us who you would like to have us interview regarding the physical precious metals market. We'll do our best to bring them on uh, as we continue these series of powerful interviews. And with that, we will see you next time on Live from the Vault. See you then.